Throughout this journey of life, we meet many people along the way. Each one has a purpose in our life. No one we meet is ever by coincidence. Those are the words of Mimi Novik. My name is Simba. Welcome to Meet Me at the Top. On this episode, we meet with a man who believes in serendipity. Despite his hard work, he believes that the fact that he said yes to many opportunities is why he has risen to the top of his field. Today we are going to talk to Jas Kara. He's an MCIPS, holds a PhD, is an assistant professor at Newcastle University, working in the supply chain field. He's also an honorary assistant professor in supply chain management at University College in London. I first saw the professor on TV. I was watching Al Jazeera and he was contributing there, discussing the supply chain crisis or the so-called supply chain crisis at that time. And I said, wow, look at this gentleman in MSIPS displaying knowledge to a global audience, relevant knowledge, relevant insights. So I, I was just drawn to his presentation. So today we have him on the show and we look forward to learning quite a lot about supply chain and how the world has evolved in terms of supply chain as a person who is doing research. He also contributed to the Oxford Handbook on Supply Chain, which was just released uh, recently. So definitely, we are in the league of the extraordinary here. Welcome, Professor. Please go ahead and share with us a bit about your life, your career. Thank you so much for having me here. So I'm currently working as an assistant professor in supply chain management at Newcastle University. I'm also an honorary assistant professor at University College London. So my work falls into three main buckets. The first bucket is that I do a lot of research, empirical research. I'm really interested in examining how organizations collaborate across supply chains to deliver complex products, projects. Before joining Newcastle University, I have worked as a senior supply chain researcher at UCL, University of Arts School of Management, and Manchester Business School, where I also earned my PhD in supply chain management. My second bucket is that I teach project management, supply chain management, and service operations management to a diverse group of undergraduate and postgraduate students. And finally, I do a lot of public engagement. I speak and write publicly about procurement and supply chain management, and I'm really interested in understanding the current challenges being faced by supply chain managers. I like keeping my ear to the ground, so I regularly speak with supply chain managers, understand their challenges, and advise them on the next steps. I also have a lot of industry experience, as in another life, I used to work as an internal consultant in the area of supply chain management and information systems. This has informed my strategic and practical focus towards research. All my research has been quite applied and grounded in reality, 
and has been developed from a range of projects with organizations across different sectors. By serendipity, yeah. So I actually started my career as an Oracle database administrator and then moved into SAP working as an SAP basis consultant. So I was fairly technical and my job was monitoring and maintaining systems and databases. We as an SAP team used to sit together and although I was quite technical, others were techno-functional consultants. And I was always interested in the broader business conversations. So even when I was doing my database and system administration, I was always listening into the functional supply chain issues in the organization, such as materials management, production planning, and distribution. Also, any new customization in the system had to go through me as I was doing the system admin. So instead of simply transporting the customization from development to a live production server, I was always interested in knowing what change has been made and why. So it was just my natural curiosity. I think many people would identify with what you are saying. Many people have to move from one area of business and go into supply chain. I can imagine that you needed a lot of support and guidance and encouragement. Who was supporting you? Who was the angel? I mean, at that time, our team was headed by a really intelligent person, a really good manager, a really good boss, who, who, who was my mentor in the industry, Mr. Baljeet Singh. So he's an all-rounder. He had a good understanding of technology and was also an excellent functional consultant. So as part of the team, I was under his remit. Now he recognized my interest and inclination towards more business-centric issues and he started giving me opportunities. And I started my journey as an internal consultant for procurement and supply chain related issues. As part of this role, I mapped end-to-end supply chain of the organization. At that time, the organization was also considering an acquisition, so I performed an analysis of the new organization's existing supply chain processes as well. We also implemented a salesforce.com, which is a CRM solution. And we specifically focused on after-sales maintenance and asset management modules. So he, Mr. Baljeet Singh, he gave me a lot of opportunities. So after three years of working there, I was given another opportunity to study for my master's at the UK and I could choose any specialization I liked. So I decided to pursue master's in operations project and supply chain management at Manchester Business School. During the final semester of my master's, I was writing my dissertation and I got really interested in doing empirical research. And that's when I met my second mentor, who was more on the academic side, Professor Alice Brandon-Jones. And he's someone I speak towards to this day. And he has had a big influence on my career. He was the one who encouraged me to pursue a PhD. However, before the start of my PhD, he moved to University of Bath. And that's when I met my third mentor, who supervised my PhD in Manchester, Professor Paul Cousins. He is a very big name in the area of strategic supply chain management and is currently a deputy dean at Liverpool. Now, under him, I wrote my PhD thesis on the procurement of professional services. Well, that was a really interesting project based on my 
empirical research with Citibank. He, Professor Paul Cousins, shaped me into a procurement and supply chain scholar, both as a researcher and a, and a professor. So that was my that was the start of my academic journey. And from there on, I went on to work at University of Bath, where I worked with some of the biggest names in our field, professors Michael Lewis, Brian Squire, and Jens Rorick, where I started looking at the procurement and supply chain issues in Hinkley Point C, with a particular focus on the governance of buyer-supply relationships. From there, I went to UCL, where I worked with Professor Grant Mills, on a leading industry project with MACE on how to improve the development of data analytics capability in the UK construction industry. And now I'm at Newcastle working as a supply chain boss. So I have been quite fortunate to get the opportunities to grow and contribute to the discipline. So what is your passion? You've been around the world, you've been in different spaces, what is your passion? Oh yeah, my current passion and something that I've been working on for the past three to four years is how procurement can become a force for good. How can we go from beyond, how can we go beyond purely economic terms to create social value? So for instance, how can large purchasing organizations increase the diversity of suppliers in their supply chains? So what that actually means is that as you, as you can see, traditionally, procurement has been seen as a mechanism for cost reduction, right? You work with certain suppliers regularly, and every two or three years, you'll go to them and get them to reduce their prices further. Now, you also work with more established suppliers where you have trusted capabilities. And and then, so you, you work quite, you know, collaborative with them because they could also be quite powerful. And you look at small suppliers only, when you're buying a routine product, like some routine products like nuts and bolts, for example. However, if you look at the UK, the business mix in the UK, 99% of businesses are SMEs. And 96% of these businesses are micro businesses. So how can large organizations work with the smaller suppliers and integrate them successfully into supply chains? So that is something I'm really keen on pushing forward right now. I'm, I'm working and I have worked on a couple of projects around this. I'm also working on projects where we look at how these large organizations can actually promote equality, diversity and inclusion in their supply chains. So for instance, working with businesses owned by women, businesses owned by people of color, businesses owned by people who are disadvantaged or disserviced. Thank you for that, Prof. Maybe I can quickly ask you something around that. If we look at the UK with Brexit, and even if we add COVID on top, how has that priority of developing suppliers ranked within the UK? You know, everyone wants to provide opportunities for the previously disadvantaged, but at some stage when we are in a, in a pandemic or in a downturn in the market, businesses just strive to survive and therefore that point of developing women-owned businesses or youth-owned enterprises that becomes lower ranking item what has been your experience from your research and your students and the corporates that you work with 
Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question because, you know, you know, the best of the intentions can get disrupted by the world around us. So you're absolutely right on that. So, you know, well, Brexit is a very specific issue that the whole no- and the whole notion of Brexit was that we are detaching the UK from the European Union and trying to do everything by ourselves. But the trade has been disrupted for the UK. And the importance of focusing on our regional capabilities is becoming more and more important than ever. So there's definitely a push towards that and how we can build and develop local capabilities and use them well. This is becoming really important. And it's kind of a risk mitigation mechanism and also, but also a way to create social value, I believe. Now, I think one thing is that this COVID has disrupted the nature of business and all the plans for for kind of promoting local regional capabilities. And the economy in general will take a long time to recover. The borders have been closed. There are production and shipping delays worldwide. So this has all been happening. So, I mean, that's another reason to have more local capabilities, right? It needs more investment and commitment. In my experience, organizations still don't understand how to do all of this effectively, how to work with smaller suppliers, how to kind of leverage local capabilities. We, we don't understand how to do that. And that has proven to be more challenging than what was expected by the experts and the policymakers when we were all thinking about Brexit many years ago. It seems like a lifetime ago. Tell me, how long have you been in this industry? I started my career in 2009, but I got into supply chain in around 2010. So you could say I've been working in supply chain since 2010 at least as a supply chain business analyst. So I was looking at information systems and how they can be used to improve supply chain practice. So that was my industry work. And then I joined academia in 2014. Uh, so it's been seven years now. Here I have been working with organizations such as Citibank, Manchester Airport Group, Inkley Point C, and Mates, among, among others. So I look at you know these organizations' supply chain practices and drawing on the theories and the academic literature, I give recommendations. But I also build theories based on actual practice, actual observations, and my my interviews and my work with these organizations. So I work quite closely with these organizations. So yeah, I've been doing this for about seven years now. It seems that your career has been a roller coaster ride. I guess it is expected. If we say that the world is moving faster, if you have everything in the world happening fast and faster, then also it might suggest that you can develop your career in a very fast way to an extent. Assuming that you have the resources to back you up, you should be able to rise very fast. The world is moving really fast. It's moving at a really fast pace. And uh, I don't know where I've read that, but I've read somewhere that an average millennial will have a minimum of five careers over the course of their lives. So our careers are going to change. And so there is no one job for life anymore. When you're going to change as the industry is going to change, I think people say that COVID is a a once in a lifetime disruptive event. I I personally feel that our economies have been have been getting disrupted at least for the past 50 years. So with every disruption, the industry slowly starts to change and the nature of work starts to change. 
So your careers then adapt to that change. For example, in the last two years, the digital transformation that should have taken 10 years, that was the plan, it got, it took two years for us to get there. You know, the 10 years worth of digital transformation was achieved in two years. And with that came a lot of different jobs, different things. I think the sessions, they do, they do kind of keep adapting and upgrading themselves. So it's been very serendipitous with me. I've been, yeah, it's been quite interesting. I've been able to do what I like. I've been able to kind of juggle different things. I've been able to do some really good industry work. I've been able to do my research. I still work very closely with the industry. So I think I've been very fortunate there and it's mostly serendipitous. I've always allowed room for serendipity in my life. Thank you very much, Prof. In your career, whether in industry or in academia, what are the challenges that you've experienced in recent times or the key challenges that you've seen? I think that the fundamental challenge that have influenced organizations, irrespective of the sector that they're operating in, and this will come as no surprise to you, is collaboration. So we are expected to collaborate across different organizations. That's the whole implication of having a supply chain, right? Uh, The problem is that due to outsourcing, organizations are becoming more atomized and specialized, and the tasks are becoming more and more complex and and interdependent. So organizations need to collaborate, and yet we don't collaborate very well, right? We don't collaborate very well. So that's one bit. The other bit that has come recently to my attention because of you know a, a research project that I was working on in the construction industry is the issue of data and data sharing. So we intend to digitally transform our products, supply chain and projects. What we need for that is data. Data to be transferred across organizational boundaries. And we almost seem to assume that data will be a good quality data will be there. We often we often ignore that data is actually really precious resource and there aren't any incentive to share data with each other and there is very little data governance in place so people are actually scared of sharing their data so organizations they need to build a lot of trust before they start on this the problem that we seem to be focused on is developing advanced analytical capability building technological capabilities is important but we need trust we need social mechanisms in place so yeah in other words it all comes down to collaboration Thank you, Professor. What is that one thing that you believe everyone in the industry should stop doing? And you can even tell us what you think everyone in the industry should start doing. So just looking for that habit, the practice that you feel should be eliminated from the collective. From my perspective, the industry and particularly the procurement professionals, they think of suppliers as less powerful organizations, right? They start thinking of these suppliers as organizations that should do their bidding and reduce costs and bring innovation whenever they desire. They start thinking about these supply chain relationships from a collaborative perspective. And I know it is not a new piece of information, but every time I have worked with an organization, I've, I've found that the biggest pain point for them is their supply chain relationships. Yes, I mean, suppliers, how dissatisfied they are with the way they have been treated by these large procurement organizations, I mean, they, it's always a problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's really important that you stop thinking of procurement as a cost reduction mechanism 
and start working with suppliers as a single supply chain and start creating shared value. The competition is not between firms, it's between supply chains now. And let's think beyond competition, right? We, we, let's think about cooperation. All these mega challenges that we have in front of us, they are only going to be solved through collaboration, not competition. And uh, you know, over the last two years, we have seen how fragile our supply chains are, right? So our survival depends on the efficient and effective running of supply chains. So let's start thinking about them more strategically. Would you like to know a bit about your work, specifically a project that you're passionate about, a project that you've uh, done, and maybe you can share a bit with us successes and the failures what sort of problem did you deal with? What are the opportunities? Why was it important? And any data or research that backs you up, how the world is a better place or how we can benefit from that insight? Yes, thank you so much for the question, Fremba. The project that I would like to talk about is a project that I did just a few years ago. It was with a nuclear power plant being built in the UK, Hinkley Point C. And I was based at University of Bath. So I was based at HPC Supply Chain Innovation Lab, which was a collaboration between EDF Energy and, and University of Bath. So I was a researcher there. And as part of my research with Hinkley Point C, I was looking at a range of supply chain issues that they were facing and they were working on a supply chain development program. So I was, I was part of that. So one particular project that me and my team worked on was to review and advise on the program that they were leading, which was around bringing in SMEs into their supply chain. So integrating SMEs, small medium enterprises into their supply chain. Yeah, so the reason they wanted to do, there were two reasons they wanted to do this. So one was that they had to demonstrate social value through their project and that's part of the requirements uh, of the UK government with any major project that is being developed in the UK so you have to demonstrate social value so they decided that the way they're going to do it is by integrating regional SMEs into their supply chain so more 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 contracts that go to regional SMEs the more prosperous the more, more prosperous would the region become so that was the whole idea and the second reason was that at that time, if you remember back in 2017, a big contractor in the UK construction industry, Carillion, it, it collapsed, it went, it went bust. And that was a huge shock to the system for this industry. And if you think about contractors like Carillion, they actually operate as big integrators between the clients like EDF Energy and then the rest of the supply chain. So they are the ones who are managing supply chains and delivering these projects now. And they, they charge a huge fee for it for just managing these projects. When giants like this go bust, it gives you a reason to think about the structuring of the industry. So can this industry, can the UK construction industry, can they be structured differently? And that's what EDF thought about. So if they removed the middlemen like Carillion, it would be risky in the short term, but in the long term, they would have closer relationship with their supply chains. Otherwise, all those relationships would be managed uh, by these contractors. So they would get closer to their supply chains. 
these suppliers will be more loyal to them they will become the client of choice and they would actually understand what's going on in the supply chain so that was the other reason and and yes they would save a lot of money because one big organization with a lot of overheads from the supply chain and go direct to the source you you save money in the long run so the, these were the two reasons that this organization was trying to do it mm, interesting this organization that you're referring to is it very major in a particular industry so for example if we're talking about the big bust in, in the uk now hmm. when i decide to go direct but i don't have enough volumes to sustain those smes because it's only my organization unless if an agent specifically does you know maybe roads so at least there'll be continuous business so in this case the organization that you're referring to what sort of space are they in which industry are they in and how do they proceed relating to that so i'm reflecting on the example that you gave right carillion let's replace that kind of a model that's what you're saying so yeah. when you do that do you not need to then yourself as the organization that is now cutting off the middle have enough work to sustain these smes because not just managing one project they will probably yeah. have multiple, multiple projects in that chain would ensure a bit of long term business you know in some way or another yeah so uh, that's that's actually a really good question so uh, what happens is that these projects these big projects these major projects they are of a long duration on the project level so they would be a 10 to 15 year project but yes you're right they are temporary in nature so the whole idea is that you would have this supply chain if the client got involved in designing this supply chain it would it would stay but after 10 years the client will go away the project is done and then what will these organizations do so that's a fair question and you know that's why these contractors exist that once you are linked to these contractors who get one project after the other and they are working on a range of projects similarly they can essentially pick the same suppliers and and they can kind of latch them on to to other projects so there are benefits of connecting with these these big tier 1 contractors the thing, and that's how actually the how the industry operates but what happens is that some of the regional players who are not let's say in london so london has a big mega project ecosystem you have these contractors and these suppliers so they are essentially just working with each other all the time or they are just looking for these suppliers that are within that region if let's say you're building a nuclear power plant you're not building that in the middle of london you're building that in a rural area so if you give the contract to an organization like this and they did give a lot of contracts to big organizations as well these organizations will use their existing supply chains that are not from the region they would just bring it from wherever and and help them deliver that project while while that is okay there will be no opportunities no development in in the region itself the, the region will only start to get the value of these projects after after 10 to 15 years but during those 10 to 15 years the community that's bearing the construction of that project essentially will not be getting any benefits so that was that is one reason but to answer your question directly what have once this once edf finishes this project and then it walks away to other to do other project so even though this organization edf energy is a big player it's one of the biggest players here in the energy energy sector consumers know it they because they EDF Energy provides electricity to their homes. They are not a project management specialist, so they build one nuclear power plant and they will make another nuclear power plant if the UK government approves. So yes, 
but what they did with this these organizations is that they made themselves sustaining for example for a catering contract they created a consortium of smes so they they took five small organizations they built them into one big organization there are five smes working as one organization it's called somerset ladder and the organization has become so successful not only delivering two hinkley point c project but they are also now bidding for other projects in the region so they have created these self-sustaining organizations who can exist and continue to exist beyond this project so that was the that was how they were addressing this issue thank you that's very interesting so what then happened what was the outcome and uh, yeah how are things going now my my task on that was looking uh, reviewing the whole the whole process and delivering the lessons learned on how they did it codifying the lesson and disseminating to it to themselves the internal managers and the wider audience as well so uh, how i did that project was i actually went to the site uh, the actual site a couple of times i spoke to the managers over there and the suppliers and the wider organizations i spoke to all of them i collected some archival data so i looked at the contracts i looked at looked at their policy documents and i came up with an outline of the process a couple of steps that an organization if they want to include SMEs in their supply chains the steps that these organizations would need to take i came up with a, a list of steps or the phases that these organizations go through to build these to build these SME networks so that's that's what i did and uh, so i created two teaching cases out of it and one of them actually won an award so yeah so it has been going quite well the other bit is that i the academic work itself one of some of it has been published in the association of project management's project magazine and we are also writing an academic paper out of it so that's that's the output for us but for the organization what has been really interesting is that once they have the model so first they were in this project they were trying something new they were trying to incorporate SME but now based on this review and analysis they have a model that they can replicate to other projects so now they are they are thinking of whenever they are building an, another nuclear power plant how can they can replicate the same model to the same effect and actually save the save the cost because now they have been through the learning curve so that's what they are trying to do So that that has been the outcome so far. That is very interesting. Perhaps I can follow up with some questions around that. Yep. The first one would be what sort of high level, what sort of skills or competencies do organizations need to have in order to manage their SMEs to be able to integrate them effectively? What sort of competencies do they need? Oh, so the main competency that these organizations need is what we term as a network orchestration so you are not just integrating them but actually orchestrating a network so here's how i would explain it if you look at look at an orchestra and you have the conductor they don't own these orchestra players right uh, the players and the musicians in the orchestra they but they know the tune they are coordinating the whole symphony between these players and that's how music is created that's the model that you can think about when you are looking at these organizations who are orchestrating these 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 SME networks so they don't own the SMEs they are, they don't even have the capability of doing what these SMEs do for example edf energy is is someone who is an energy company they are not ones who build nuclear power plant 
definitely not in the UK. They are not the ones who do catering. They are not the ones who build roads. So those are all distinct competencies that the technical competencies that they don't have and they don't need to have. What they need is this capability of orchestrating, coordinating these these different streams of work and linking them in such a way and sequencing them in such a way that this project is delivered on time, within budget, and within scope. So that's the main capability that they need to have. And coordination is not easy. Coordination is done through contract. Coordination is done through relational mechanisms like trust, social capital. So that is what this organization would need to have, all the social capabilities to be able to orchestrate these SME networks successfully. Very interesting. Perhaps you can repeat the term that you use. Yeah, so the term is network orchestration. Network orchestration. That's a big lesson for me right there. Thank you for that response. To follow up on that as well, we talked about the the Karelian issue. But I think recently, again, if you look at the UK, there was another story relating to sort of a debt, not debt, a finance organization doing supply chain finance and yes. it went under under you know during the COVID period uh, yeah yes, so. yeah so what do you think is the best model around that was it comes back to the SMEs as well to say how do we then manage that because in my environment where I am the integrator to, to an extent would also uh, finance um, the smaller players to an extent, for example, it's a big project and mm. the smaller players might need a funding for small things, eh? but yeah. then the payments for the project, they are due later. And so the, the integrator plays a mm. part in supporting the, the smaller players. So they come, they do whatever they will need to do a small part. Mm-hmm. They get paid, even though the, the actual overall project maybe we've not yet reached a payment stage. So yes. I'm thinking about that to say how do we then manage? Because the reason why we had the organization, I've forgotten the name of that organization, but I'm sure you know it. I think the it's Green Cell. Green Cell. Exactly, Green Cell. The reason why we have those organizations in the first place mm-hmm. is the, the client or the main uh, the client they've not figured out a way of dealing with the payments, you know, where a small company does business with a large organization or a government department. The mm-hmm. payments are very slow. In the model which you're looking at, did you consider that or do you have any insight on that area to say then how else do we coordinate? Because I think coordination is, is, is not just on the product, but yeah. on the information and the finance as well that make up then is supply chain. Yeah, so supply chain finance is a big issue, right? And it's a really important issue for for this SME work. So as you mentioned, that supply chain is not just about flow of materials and goods and services into into the system, but also the flow of information but and the flow of finance. I think the model that I, I quite liked, which was adopted by EDF Energy, was that when working with SMEs, they had managers, they had people 
who are who they place as SME engagement managers who are passionate about working with SMEs. You will see that it all comes down to people at the end. So they were SME managers and they were actually passionate about bringing prosperity to the region. So one of the people that we work with, Jamie Driver, I think he's retired now, but he was actually from Bridgewater. So he was really passionate about bringing this prosperity to the Bridgewater region. It was really interesting that he usually procurement managers, they are, it's not always true, but they are often known for operating from anywhere, but also they work from home a lot, so a remote work and everything. But with Jamie Driver, you would never find him sitting in one place. He was always on the run. He was going to these SMEs, small shops, small factories. He was going to them and he was speaking with them. So he was doing two things. He was A, encouraging them to bid for these contracts. So he was giving them confidence that yes, we are serious about it. Please come in, please put your interest forward and we will consider you. But the second thing, which was most important for any supply chain manager that he was doing was he was understanding what are the pain points, what are the issues with these small small businesses. And one big issue that he identified was that these SMEs cannot work with the payment cycles that of large organizations. So a large organization, for example, would have a contract where they say, we will make a payment in 120 days. SMEs can't wait for, for four months to get their payment. They need it within within 30 days or, you know, they would not be able to buy more, more, more stock for their next cycle. So that's what he was understanding. And what and when he fed that back to the senior management, the solution they came up with was that they came with a customized procurement process for these SMEs. If you looked at the contracts of these, when they, when they, the contracts that they adopted for working with SMEs, they had shorter payment cycles. They were more considerate. They were, given, and additionally, they were getting these SMEs training from big banks on how to apply for loans, how to scale up their businesses. So it was not just that you're my supplier, here's the contract and come and deliver. And I'm doing you a big favor by giving you this big contract. They were actually helping SMEs, working with them for the next four or five years so that they can scale up their capabilities. They can apply, make application, loan applications to, to these banks, banks like Barclays and such to get more money. And they were helping them frame those applications and they were supporting those applications. And also they were sharing demand very openly with these SMEs. So for example, for again, I'll take that catering catering example. Let's say they are, when, when the project is at its peak, they need 6,000 lunches, but the project was not going to come at its peak in the build phase for the next five years. Till those five years, they didn't need to make 6,000 lunches. They needed to make maybe 150, 200 lunches as depending on how many people were on site. And so what EDFNR did it, they, shared those, that demand as it appeared to them slowly with and very openly with Somerset Lada. And Somerset Lada was able to slowly over the next five years scale up their capabilities so that they could produce 6,000 lunches uh, a day. So the, the answer to your question is that yes, finance is a big issue. And you know, a lot of organizations like Greensill and, and, and other supply chain finance companies, they operate in terms of giving loans to these SMEs, but there are alternative models. But all of these models need the clients to take a more active role in managing these supply chain networks. And that's why orchestration, that you don't own any of it, but your social and relational capabilities help you manage these supply networks. That's very insightful. It, it, it reminds me of um, there's a case of a Boeing. Hmm. 
as they tried to make one of their biggest plans in recent times and they had to essentially now employ over 50 engineers who would uh-huh. go to the second tier, third tier uh, uh, vendors so that they can collaborate and provide support. When you have a component, it might have 20 different firms who have contributed to that. Mm. And so it delayed the, the, the project. So they had to roll out a squad of engineers who would be based in different companies around the world to just try and ensure there is that uh, yes. coordination and, and alignment, which will reduce the, uh, the commissioning errors and issues and have, the, and have the planes faster to their own customers faster delivery to their customers so yeah i'm with you there no i think on this one you've really shown us a bit more on how we can rethink working with smes and was there there are a reality and actually yeah. there are a sign of development you know it's a more SMEs mm. in economy it's a sign of innovation that people are enterprising so thank you for that insight uh, a general question do you have yes. any is in the if you look at the uk or in europe or elsewhere where you are researched about what is the best way of managing the the development of the vendors so what i'm saying is we have a policy here a social value and so it's a construction project so the construction yes. companies they would have their different rates to reflect this, their size and capabilities based on past week. So you give a big a deal, and then as a condition, they have to bring smaller players. We find that the smaller players, they are not um, investing in capabilities. Mm-hmm. More, for example, will you, you do a project, a construction, you would estimate that maybe the smaller contractor maybe may, they may buy you know a small machine you know, a yellow machine a small one at least so that they've got what a extra capacity and that they can use on the next project so just buying those a few items or even employing key staff on a permanent basis so you probably find that you have a project and you find a subcontractor and they have to employ an engineer. So they employ some, the SME employs an engineer. Yep. Their employment with them, it, it is so tied to the project that there is no development, you, you understand? So it takes four months until they get a, a, new, a new deal. They won't have an engineer. And when they get to that project, they are starting afresh to look for you know, same skills. My question is, how best can we uh, incentivize or enforce some form of uh, investment which is a key um, competencies or capabilities that are required for a company to, to develop to their level you know we're not saying they should you know, own everything but some form of investment that they can then uh, 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 leverage on as they go into the next project not saying but give me this work because i'm an sme and that's my reason but as well as you're saying yes i've got a, a letter of reference but i also bought this small bucky i bought this equipment or i've employed one two three people who are you know who got skills that are in demand so 
I, I think you get the, the, the view of the question to say, how do you then enforce? Because as an organization, one of the things that demotivates and maybe reduces the return on investment is that the suppliers that we try and develop, they may not um, reciprocate. So that so now our value is it's like a short-term thing as well. And we want to reflect on it and say we are developing because as, as the main uh, person or main company that is doing this project, we are going concerned. So basically we are going to be around for some time. So we'd expect that those who we are developing essentially also are able to continue and develop and get another project. We don't need to find again a green, green SME. We are starting from a, you know, a higher level of a of, uh, maturity. Uh, I, so let me repeat your question and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I'll give you what, what I think your question is. I think the question you're asking is that once we have developed these SMEs, let's say for project A, how can we ensure that that SME can be used when we go into project B? Also that SME continues to grow, continues to develop and improve its capabilities. When when they're invited on project B, they're not starting from the scratch, they're starting based on the learning that they already have with you. Right, is that your question? Yes, so that is the question to say, when we take them on board, so there's the yeah. transfer of knowledge, transfer of technology, and even some uh, uh, financial um, support. So yeah. I would expect a, a company that is doing, for example, a welding to say, okay, we've done a project in this year, we're going to buy maybe two new vehicles or two mm. welding. Yeah. So extra capacity that they are developing on their own, say, okay, exactly. I'm now at a better stage. So when they get the next project, they don't have to rent all of the machines. You know, they have maybe four mm. of their own and rent they the other five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's what I'm looking at. Say, how do we get them to kind of look at business in that sense and not just about today, but trying to actually then contribute? Well, the moment they start investing in themselves, mm. you know, whether in terms of yeah. knowledge, equipment, there is a, a, a positive benefit to the main mm-hmm. client because of better quality, better expertise, you know, they're able to contribute more because they've now built up um, some some capabilities. So that would be, in my view, a good ROI. We don't, next year, we don't need to start again and look for a new supplier or even it's the same one, but they don't have anything that they're adding, you know, they, they're really not growing. So the starting part is fine, but the acumen to continue to grow, uh, and then that growth can then now give a positive financial and social uh, impact on me, the main client. The the answer to your question is is complex <laughs> because it depends on what kind of work it is, what kind of industry it is. You are a teacher, and you are you are doing your best in class with the student. How do you get the student to do their homework over the weekend? How do you get, because you're teaching them, which is good, but there's some homework that they have to do as well. So how do we get to the point that, yeah. they, you know, they're also doing the homework and what is the mechanism? So if it was school, I mean, you they have the parents sign something, so that there's enforcement of some sort or encouragement and support. So that is what I see as lacking, particularly within my own environment 
we don't get um, some form of uh, guardianship or direction for the small players now to actually develop. Hmm. Yeah, so I think the question you're asking is the question of relationship-specific investment. So let's say an organization A works with supplier B, right? And they are giving this business to supplier B and developing them. And they expect supplier B to keep investing in their capabilities and also keep make investments in, in the relationship that they have with A. So let's say if there is a specific tooling that they need, which will only work for, which will only work in their transactions with buyer A, they should make that investment so that next time when they are given that contract, they should be able to start working on it on it immediately and, and the relationship goes on and on. That's what a relationship invest, specific investment is. The concept of relationship specific investment implies that if you're a supplier, if you're a small business and you're, you have invested in a capacity, a new tool, new machinery, if you've invested in that, and that investment is only going to give you returns while transactions with only one buyer, that would create an issue because you have made an investment that is specific to that transaction. If you go to a buyer B, you will have to change the machinery, you'll have to change the capacity. So the problem is that if you get these if you want to get these suppliers to make those kind of relationship specific investments you have to come up with a bigger promise because once they make those relationship specific investments they are held up they are tied to you they are locked into this relationship and you know we have the whole transaction cost economic theory around it that they are then uh, captive suppliers and they are vulnerable to the opportunistic behavior that might be displayed by you so you have to become a different kind of buyer if you want to get your SMEs to, to invest in their capabilities. The second bit is that it depends if you're working on a manufacturing or a, or a long-term service operation, which are more of a permanent nature, at least, in, at least in theory, or if you're working on a project, because projects are temporary by nature. So if you are temporary, uh, if you're working on this, developing this nuclear power plant, and then after 10 years, you'll go away, you cannot make uh, expect your suppliers to make an investment that will only be specific to you. So that's a big issue. However, and the other sort of other barrier to that is the policy barrier. So in the UK, at least, what happens is if you're working on a public project, then there is by law, you are required to demonstrate value for money when you're doing your procurements, value for money and competitive tendering. So if you have worked with an SME before, you cannot guarantee them that they will get a contract in the second in in your second project as well. They will have to compete again. You'll have to you will have to show evidence that you have done competitive tendering, and that's a big problem because if you're not making long-term commitment to the SMEs, then how how will they trust your word and how will they make those investments? So that's a bit of a policy barrier which will need addressing in the long term. But yeah, in the short term, if you're looking at manufacturing operations. Yes, this is possible that you can think about a long-term contract, you can develop those suppliers, invest in their capabilities, get them to invest in their capabilities in promise of, of future business. That's the only time you can uh, get them to make relationship-specific investments. Thank you very much. What sort of advice would you give someone who is wanting to follow 
the path that you took, IT, and then you go into supply chain, you go into academia, research. What sort of advice would you give someone who wants to follow that? Yes. So, the advice the the advice that I would give to anyone who wants to follow the same path is that be curious and be open to serendipity. So, whatever I've done in my career is wasn't planned. So, as as I said, I was initially working with information systems, and then I, which slowly gave way to operations, and then it slowly gave to supply chains. The whole idea was that whenever I was working, I was naturally curious. Whenever there was an opportunity, I said yes. I was lucky that those opportunities worked out, and I kind of kept going where I was, where I was going. So I never decided when I was working that I would become an academic. But while, when I was doing my masters, I was working on a research project. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the university culture, and I went on to become an academic. So that's the serendipity part. I think the other important thing is to. be very open to reading writing and thinking the reason i say that is i read that somewhere that an average millennial will will have a minimum of five careers over the course of their lifetime so what that means is that we have seen right we have seen the digital transformation caused because of covid it has spanned a new set of industries 2008 financial collapse led to new it led to recession and then led to business innovation every every exogenous shock brings with it new kinds of businesses new kind of ideas so that every time an industry changes you have to adapt to it so what what that means to say is that there is if you are adaptable and if you have a core set of skills that you can uh that you can uh, customize to the new situation new jobs new surroundings then that's a good thing and we are in the knowledge economy so the only currency that we have is ideas and education so what i always encourage my students to do is that whichever whatever you're interested in make sure that you read a lot and you write a lot because writing is equal to thinking right when you're writing you're actually thinking so if you have these set of skills then no matter what new situation comes or whichever new career or path that you become interested in you have these basic set of skills that will prepare you for it and in times of us having a limited attention span reading and writing is a superpower because it needs you to be focused for longer periods of time so that's something that i respect whether you choose to be an academic or not we are in the knowledge economy we are all expected to be thinkers i would encourage you to read write be open be open to serendipity thank you very much i like that one on the reading and writing being a superpower that's yeah. very powerful what would you uh, say has been the most influential resource in your career i i, I know you you mentioned earlier on mentors mm-hmm. who kind of guided you or yeah and then you also just talk about continuously reading and so forth is there anything you want to add on that to say is an influential resource which has worked for you well i mean there is in addition to the mentors that i have and i speak to a lot of good scholars and i have my mentors why why speak to from time to time 
In addition to the influence that they have had on me, what I do is I regularly read the trade journals. I regularly read the the academic journals, and I'm very much you know that's part of my job, but I also enjoy it. I'm very much needed to be on the top of what are the current industry problems and what is the empirical evidence. So what stuff actually works and what actually doesn't work, and what are the nuances around that. I regularly read SIPS uh, uh, magazine, Supply Management. I'm very much on top of that. I read APM's Project Magazine. I, I really enjoy doing that. I also read a range of academic journals, the so Journal of Supply Chain Management, Journal of Operations Management, Journal of Management, International Journal of Operation and Production Management. This journal is is a is a really good European journal, and I'm really in I'm very much involved in its promotion and management as well. So I'm very much on the top of academic research, and I think that's my passion. But it also has helped me shape my thinking and sh- look at the current industry problems from the eye of from the eyes of theories and empirical evidence mm. thank you very much for, for sharing the tricks of the game i wish you a, quite a lot of success and uh, i hope to see you more i've watched <laughs> your interviews and it, it gives so much encouragement when you see particularly for me within the sips community and uh-huh. we see someone who is associated with sips being referred to as you know, an expert and you're giving your professional views i think that really says that we are relevant you know and for you to to actually be considered um, an expert so it says that we are on the right course and then the world will acknowledge the profession and the professionals who are applying themselves you know, beyond the basic or a, a business aiming kind of a perspective that this is actually a, a quite an interesting and very impactful new area in terms of practices new area in terms of knowledge and research that's that's very kind that's really kind to uh, kind of you to say Simba because I quite enjoy doing research thinking about these issues and speaking about it and I think supply chains particularly procurement and supply chains and projects they are all at the end of the day the whole philosophy behind them is is making the world a better place I strongly believe that operations supply chains projects done right will make a better the world a better place so i think it's really exciting to see that the world right now is fascinated by them i think it's really important and yes i i i look forward to uh, speaking to you again at some point and sharing these ideas and and reflecting on some of my experiences thank you very much for your time and all the best Oh uh, yes and you too and thank you so much for the opportunity all the best to you as well okay so thank you very much prof if there's anyone who would want to get in touch with you to collaborate to search how can they find you right so yes i'm i'm really open to discussions collaboration i'm very active on twitter and linkedin my twitter handle is just_kaldra and on linkedin you can just find me uh Uh, by searching just caldra newcastle university i'm also i also have a web page on newcastle university business school website so that's there and yes my email id is justcaldrightoutlook.com so whichever channel you prefer feel free to reach out and i'm very happy to discuss thank you very much for that i'm sure many will 
want to know more about your research and collaborate with you. So thank you very much for sharing. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, so that we can share with you the latest updates and news. We also would like to hear from you, your comments and feedback. Until next time, I'm your host Simba. Meet me at the top.